You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I urge you as she has made the ask to get involved outside of these walls to the extent that you can. I promise you will receive the greater blessing as you get to be the agency of Bethel serving at that school a couple blocks over is a great thing. And as she's also said, I want to invite you to discover Bethel this uh, afternoon, right at noon on the second floor, uh, where that's, again, as she said, the next thing that we want to do to help you get connected. Now, it's no accident that we uh, asked Shay to do our announcements and welcome this morning because we sort of wanted to put our best foot forward to soften the blow of what's coming next because now it's me. My name's Eric and I get to pastor the downtown campus and um, I'm delighted that you're here. I do want to welcome all of you here, particularly our visitors. This morning, it struck me and it occurred to me that it's, it's January in the year 2020. So this morning, I want to talk about the election. No, 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 not the November 2020 election. No, 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 what we're gonna talk about this morning is way easier than that. See, in that election, you will evaluate a whole host of candidates and issues, and you'll do your dead level best to figure out what makes you mad, what makes you less bad, mad, and you'll, you'll, you'll try to, you know, I don't know, you'll, you'll try to perhaps choose the lesser of two evils, and then you'll sort of just whoa, take the, spoonful of battery acid and you'll do one way or the other or you won't at all or you'll pick it on the square. That's easy though. That's super easy compared to what we're going to talk about this morning because none of that really has anything to do whatsoever with the biblical concept of election. We're going to talk about the biblical concept, the doctrine of predestination and election. Now right now some of you are also going, oh man, I totally should have signed up to serve in the nursery. But stick with me, because this is a fundamental part of the Christian confession. And we don't get to choose and pick which things we want to discuss and which things we don't want to discuss. It follows the contours of the passage that we've been studying now since August of last year. The doctrine of election absolutely soaks both testaments, old and new. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in 12 of his 13 letters, will talk about the doctrines of predestination and election every single time, except in the book of Philemon. He'll talk about predestination and election by the second chapter of every letter that he writes because he understands that it is foundational to our faith. And if we try to just get people saved by just trusting Christ for the sins, and that's all we ever tell them, and then we try to add the idea of predestination and election back into the structure later on, it wipes out the whole mix and shipwrecks a good many faiths. So we wanna be faithful to the way that God has this lined out. We wanna talk about the biblical doctrines of predestination and election. They are profoundly encouraging to us. They are really intended to be a help to us in those times and in those seasons when we begin to experience doubts and what about this and am I really and all of those things, the doctrine of predestination and election is really supporting and sort of setting the stage for 
our big idea for the morning, and that'll be our big idea for the entire text. This morning it goes like this. God never fails. God never fails. Now that's helping us to think about God rightly, which is the most important thing about us. It's also helping us to think rightly about ourselves. There are truths that we need to internalize and wrap around our hearts, souls, and heads so that when we get into those heated or dull seasons of life, there are truths that we cling to. The doctrines of predestination and election help us to remember that God never fails and therefore neither will we, no matter what. It's helpful to remember that God is not this feeble, old, great-grandfatherly character in the sky going, oh man, I'm doing the best I can, but that Barton dude keeps screwing things up. No, no, God never fails. So we are in the book of Romans. This morning we've made it to chapter nine. We've made it all the way through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and it has been, for me at least, a wonderful experience of wrestling with the text and being pinned to the mat on more than one occasion. And so now we pivot significantly into chapter nine. We've been talking about the doctrines of condemnation, then justification. Now we've finished out the doctrine of sanctification through chapter eight. We now turn to chapter nine, and it is the national illustration of everything that Paul has just said. We have to remember that. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a unit, they're a whole, and they are the projected illustration of everything that Paul has just said for the previous eight chapters. And his thrust thus far, the theme of the book of Romans, it goes like this. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole point. Hey, it's not what we thought. God's doing a thing, and he's giving us the thing that he demands freely by grace. So now what? We come to chapter nine. Romans chapter nine, I'm gonna read the first 29 verses. We're gonna bolt on the very end of chapter nine to next week's passage, Lord willing. This morning I'm gonna read Romans nine, chapter one, verses one to 29. Paul writes this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. That's interesting. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who has not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Let he and she who has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I don't know all of you, but I'd be willing to wager that just about all of you can count the number of times you've heard Romans 9 preached on one thumb. It's just not a popular feel-good passage. Oh, perhaps you've covered it in a life group or a small group setting or a Sunday school kind of a setting, or perhaps you've made it thus far in your annual Bible reading program. But generally speaking, people like to do mini-series in the book of Romans. They like to do chapters five and six, and then they'll skip over to eight, and then they'll be done and they'll move on to something else. Romans nine is challenging. It's got some delicate themes that we want to meet head on. But here's what I wanna say. And I cannot emphasize this enough. It is one of the most profound insights you're going to hear all morning long. And it goes like this. Romans 9 comes immediately after chapter 8. Stick with me. Chapter 8 ends and there's a period. And then chapter 9 begins. Now the very end of chapter 8, Paul declares dogmatically nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's the point. Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ because God never fails. Now it's strange to us because we're compartmentalized Western learners and thinkers that Paul talks about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ and then he suddenly just pulls over the whiteboard and does a little lecture on predestination and election. What's going on here, Paul? No, 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 no. This is an illustration to demonstrate and to remind us and encourage us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, I'm saying that as emphatically as I can because by the time I get through the thick stuff of this passage, you're gonna have decided one way or the other to be angry or not. Some of you will say, he's not pushing that hard enough. Some of you will say, he's pushing it way too hard. I'm gonna look for another church. Okay, look, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to preach the passage. 
all of us bring into this room this morning a predisposition to the doctrine of predestination and election. And I'm not going to try to change your mind. I'm, I have no interest in that whatsoever. I have no freight for that whatsoever. All I want to do is to remind you that Paul was a person writing to some people in a place for a purpose. And all I want to do is to help you and me agree with Paul. You don't have to agree with that denomination or with that tradition. You don't have to agree with that system or that background. All I'm asking you to do is to see it and to hear it Paul's way and to agree with him because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, this is how the Holy Spirit sees it. So I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just trying to say, would you see it like Paul sees it? This guy who spent 14, perhaps 17 years with Jesus being trained for ministry out in the deserts of Arabia, this is what he writes to the churches in Rome. So it's very significant. We're gonna walk right back through this passage. This week, I'm going to actually give, hopefully, a series of implications or applications or really more like persistent principles that we can apply to our lives as I walk through the text. So I'm just gonna give these right as we go through the text. Let me start back in verses one to five. Paul writes this. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is as strong swear language as Paul can possibly say. He's putting himself under solemn oath. It's like he's in a courtroom and God himself is on the bench. Paul says, I swear as in Christ. What I'm saying is as though Christ is saying and the spirit bears witness. It is that serious what Paul's going to say. Verse two, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is deeply and profoundly burdened for his kinsmen, for the ethnic people, the national people of Israel. We'll find out here in a moment. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. This is, this is a wordy dirt. This is, this is swear words. This is, this is as strong as it gets. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were anathema. Now, we throw that word around sometimes when something happens in a football game that we don't like. But Paul says, I would rather myself be danged, as it were, and cut off from Christ. Oh, cut off, separated, severed to not be in Christ any longer. And I know that this is hypothetical, and Paul knows that it's hypothetical because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He's just saying this is how deep his anguish and his sorrow and his burden is for his own people. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now that's really important that we understand what Paul's doing. He's talking about national ethnic Israel. I have a deep, profound burden for them. Now that's surprising. The Jewish people represented largely his primary focus of resistance. Every time he went into a new town, he went to the synagogue, he preached, they were kind of interested, he'd go away, he'd work for a week, he'd come back the following Sabbath, preach again, they'd beat him up or stone him or flog him or hit him with rods and drive him out of town. Like the worst church planting idea and model ever. And that's what Paul did. He tells us in Corinthians how many times he was flogged and, and lashed by the Jewish people, stoned by them, abused, ridiculed, mocked, and yet he has this burden for them. That's interesting. I can, let me just be as transparent as I can. I can almost imagine saying what Paul says, I would rather be accursed and cut off from Christ if it meant that my wife and sons could be his 
for all eternity. I can almost imagine saying that, but I gotta love what the, even that, I'm like, mm, eternity's a long time. I can scarcely imagine saying it for my entire nation. Have you looked around and seen what's going on in our nation right now? And yet Paul says, I would be accursed, cut off from Christ forever for them. For this is how serious Paul is about this. So Paul has to establish right on, he is not anti-Semite. He's not contra the Jewish people. He is a Jew who loves his people profoundly. The things he says, you cannot argue with. Verse four, they are Israelites and to them belong, and then he's gonna give us eight privileges, these glorious facets of the gem of the privileges that Israel has received. Why? Because they're just so perky and precious. No, the Old Testament says they were the last, the lowest, the least, and the lost, and God chose them, and he gave them these eight facets of this jewel of grace. To them belong the adoption. Now, not adoption like Paul will talk about a Christian being adopted in Romans and in Ephesians. No, 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 no. It is in Exodus 4 where God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh, this is my son. This is my son. You treat him right. You let him go so that he can worship me. You see, in antiquity, in Semitic culture, the son was to resemble, was to reflect, was to represent the father. And God says, I am choosing this ragtag group of Goshenites <laughs> to be like me. Now, Pharaoh, you let him go. They are the ones that God chose. So Paul says, adoption. Adoption is always the choice of the adopter. Always. To them, receives, they receive the adoption, the glory to what other people did the deity himself actually show up and lead them around in the wilderness by a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud? After Solomon builds the temple, he prays marvelously and the Shekinah glory of God himself moves into the temple so that the priests had to evacuate. The glory of God himself came to these people. What a privilege. The covenants, oh, where God solemnly bound himself to them for their blessing. What other God, what other deity, what other system of religion has ever had such a being? He bound himself to them for their blessing with the Abrahamic covenant. I promise you, I will give you land and seed and blessing. He gave them the, the land covenant. You will always have significant imprint in this real estate. He gave them the Mosaic covenant. This is what obedience and righteousness looks like. Oh, it's a temporary covenant, but if you do this, you will have blessing. If you don't do this and disobey, you will have punishment and curse. He gives them the Davidic covenant. I bind myself to you, I promise. For all eternity, you will have someone who sits on the throne of David forever. What a privilege these people have received. The giving of the law, where Moses receives the law, and it is the codification of what righteousness looks like. It is a picture, it is a snapshot of the very character of God himself. What other construct of religion has ever had such a thing? The worship, they are commanded to worship, they are instructed on how to worship, they worship and God receives it. Every other form of religion, you worship and you think, Meh, maybe, I have no idea what's going on up there, or if there even isn't up there. Not so with the Israel people, they worshiped and God received it. That's incredible. And the promises. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the shore. Israel are the ones to whom all these blessings and privileges come. To them belong the patriarchs. 
Isaac, Jacob, Judah, all the way down through the genealogies. And from their race, according to the flesh, racially, ethnically, that's according to the flesh, is the Christ, that is the Messiah, who is God over all. Now, let me just say, if you are the kind of person that takes notes in your Bible, make a big, big asterisk right there. If you're not the kind of person that puts notes in your Bible, become that person today. I hear it all the time that people will say, extra biblical scholars in universities and even seminaries will say, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Jesus is God, except for all the pages where it does. And this is one of those central smoking gun passages. Paul calls Jesus God overall, amen. One of the strongest, most direct Christological passages in our Bible. But what's interesting, after enumerating all those eight privileges that they have, Paul does not sit back, put his pen down and go, whoa, you know what, now that I think about it, Israel's kind of awesome. They're, you know what, they're great, they're amazing. No, 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 he ends with a Christological doxology. He praises Jesus because it's all about him. The entire overarching story of the Old Testament was pushing to the arrival of Christ, of Messiah. And so he gives Jesus all praise. Amen, he says. So it's interesting that Paul, this is, this is uh, an important implication for us. This is an instruction for us. This is gonna be our first principle of the morning. Paul, having dealt with all of these people who had received so much privilege, so much instruction, so much doctrine, so much teaching, so much tradition, he's not angry at them. He's not embittered by them. He does not view, with, view them with disdain, which candidly can sometimes be my default tendency. When I hear about people who have grown up in the church, who have been taught all the stories, who know all the doctrines, but have turned their back on God, I grind my teeth at them and I say, you're just... That's not the way that Paul feels about these people. So our first implication, our first principle that I wanna leave this morning is, put it on screen if we can, our first one. Have patience and prayer for those who have had privilege. That's what Paul does for all of his kinsmen. When you know someone in your family, around the Thanksgiving table, who shares your bathroom mirror, whatever that might be, have patience and prayer for those who have had privilege. I don't mean wealth and prosperity. I mean, who have been the recipients of the teachings of the goodness and the glory and the grace of God. And you continue to have patience and pray for them much in the same way that Paul does. It is sincere, it is deep, it is profound. Well, now we're gonna see Paul illustrate the fact that God never fails. He's gonna use Israel as his, as his case study for the fact that, that God never fails. So I'm going to pick up reading here in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And there it is, Romans 9, 6, that little verse that has confounded people for thousands of years. But Paul first wants us to understand that the word of God has not failed. God never fails, nor does his word. God never fails, nor does his word. Paul essentially says this, it's like I was reading this map, but then I kept following the map and I followed the map and before I knew it, I was on the wrong side of the river. And I figured out, that, uh, but, uh, the, 
wait a minute, the map's not wrong. I was reading the map wrong. It was me. The map maker is right, and the map is right. God never fails, nor does his word. The entire nation of Israel had been reading the map wrongly. And Paul says, I have now, by grace, I've been able to understand the map, and I want for you to understand the map. No, God's word does not fail. So he says here in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The map is correct, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not that the map has a problem, not that the word has a problem. It's that not all who claim to be Israel are Israel. Now, this has been a contentious, volatile, volcanic passage for thousands of years. So let me just say what Paul says. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham, even though they come from Abraham. There's something specific here that means to be an Israelite. And it's not merely genetic. It's not merely an issue of race or ethnicity. Now, I know that's deeply offensive to say outside of these walls. I didn't say it. Take it up with Paul. I agree. But let me explain what Paul says. He's saying being a true Israelite has never been a mere matter of ethnicity and descent, ever. Now, we talked about that a lot back in Romans chapter 2, that a true Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly. So he's going to explain that further here. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That sounds like a contradiction. Just because you're his offspring doesn't mean you're his child. Not in the sense of being an Israelite. They are not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then Paul's going to quote God speaking to Abraham back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's not just his physiological offspring. And all the Jewish readers in Rome would have said, well, yeah, we know that. Because we know that it didn't come through Ishmael whose mother was Hagar. We know it didn't come through Keturah, one of Abraham's other wives, through whom Abraham has six sons. doesn't come through them. It comes through Isaac. We come from Isaac. You can hear them saying, Paul does his best Barney Fife, and he nips it. He nips it in the bud. And he moves forward with explaining, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how sovereign God is in his selection. God is sovereign in his selection. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this year, about this time, next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Why is that significant? Because at that point, Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael. <laughs> and God says, nope, that's not my choice. You don't get to force my hand, Abraham. I am in the sovereign business of selection. This time next year, Sarah, who's <clears throat> a little over 90. She's going to be pregnant. Oh, yeah. It's going to be gorgeous. <laughs> Verse 10. And not, that's why Isaac is named Laughter, by the way, because that's funny right there. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Oh, so you think it just comes through Isaac. Nope, it comes through God's sovereign selection. Listen to what Paul does. The map is in place and the map is not wrong. It's those who have claimed to be map holders have been reading the map wrong, okay? Not only so, verse 10, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, this is a quote from Malachi 1, who was referring back a thousand years to Genesis to say, you see there, it happened. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I have read and I have seen so many people doing so many exegetical gymnastics to try to make that sound and say something other than it says. Well, you know, Jacob I loved, but Esau, he wasn't my favorite. I'm sorry, the word is unambiguous. It can mean one and only thing. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now that offends a lot of our Hmm, how shall I say, our tendencies to fairness. We'll come back to that in a moment. The point that Paul's trying to make is, hey, listen, God has always been sovereign in selection. Even in the Old Testament, God is always sovereign in selection and God never fails, nor does his word. Don't blame the map. The map is right. Perhaps we've been reading it wrong. Perhaps we think that we are map holders when in fact we're not. No, 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 no. It's not just his sovereign selection as is evidenced in that Isaac would be the child of promise, but even his offspring and only one of them would be the line through which the promise would go, not Esau. Very interesting. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then Paul uses his most strong response, may it never be, may it never ever even be conceived. So third principle, God never fails nor does his word. The third principle is God never fails nor does his justice. God never fails, nor does his justice. He's not gonna unpack that through verse 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now that's fascinating what Paul's doing here. Paul is quoting Exodus 33, and not just Exodus 33, it's Exodus 33 when God takes Moses and puts him up in the cleft of the rock because Moses has just seen God do something amazing and Moses has interceded with God saying, please do not kill all the people. Please don't kill them. Please don't kill them. And God says, I won't do it because I like you, Moses. You're my friend. I will do for you the very thing that you ask. Moses says, now show me your glory. I would have asked for a Nissan. I mean, they're efficient, they're you know, good gas mileage. No, 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 Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't see my glory, but I tell you what I will do, I'll give you a glimpse. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he covers him with his hand and he walks by. And he goes, Whoop, that's it, that's all you get, Moses, because otherwise you'll die. And what does he say to him as he walks by him? God gives commentary on himself. I am Yahweh, the, the commander of the hosts of the armies of heaven, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. What's Paul doing? He's saying this is not just some mere theological thought that I am having. This is God's self-expression. This is what God is like. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion because I am sovereign in my selection. And oh, by the way, this is grace. This is election because what Paul wants us all to understand is that Pharaoh was guilty already. And by extension, so too is the entire human race, guilty and deserving justice already. So is God fair? Oh, praise God, he is not. 
You know what fairness means? Fairness means that everybody gets treated the same, and they don't. If God was fair, then there would not be a single soul saved in all human history. No, 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 no. Pharaoh was guilty already. Let me say it as directly as I can. We sort of assume in our culture, in our context, in this century, that everybody is morally neutral and that they should be giving a fighting chance. That's just fair. Unfortunately, that's contemporary, but it is distinctly not biblical. There is no such thing as a morally neutral person if that was the case, then God just, well, see, everybody's morally neutral. See, I like her shirt, don't like his hair. Uh, let's, mm, he's from that school. No, nope, they're out. But that guy right there, that guy cuts his lawn really nicely. He's in. Of course not. And yet that's how many of us think about God. No. God never fails, nor does his justice. And now he's going to amplify this further with his discussion on Pharaoh. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. Please hear this. His sovereign selection does not depend on human will or exertion. Effort, trying, deciding. Doesn't, determine, doesn't depend on any of those things. But on God, here's the key, who has mercy. Everybody deserves justice but God will have mercy upon whom he has mercy. He will have compassion upon whom he has compassion. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, by the way, that's a quick little thing that Paul's doing there. He wants you to understand that scripture is what God says and what God says is scripture. Because actually in Exodus 33, when Paul's quoting this, it's God speaking. But here in Romans 9, 17, he says, for scripture says to Pharaoh, that's a beautiful little deal just to remind us that what scripture is is what God says. What God says is scripture. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I have not shown you mercy, Pharaoh. Oh, I raised you up. I made you prosperous and rich and powerful so that I would be recognized as the all-powerful in the world. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Or more specifically, he makes stubborn whomever he wills. Verse 19, Paul does not shy away from the hardest question perhaps that's ever been asked. And it is a tough question to ask and to answer. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And you would sort of expect Paul to go, hold on, let me, let me, let me explain. You're, you're, not, you're not tracking with me. Let me, let me. let me help you out here. Let me, it. Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul has a high theology and a low anthropology. Paul assumes universal human guilt. Paul does not say, boy, I'm so sorry. You got me into a cul-de-sac now. I don't know what else to do. Paul's answer is revealing. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Is God sovereign or is he not? Yes, of course he is. Is God not just in his sovereign selection? Oh yes, of course he is. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Whew, that's a hard, hard verse. 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's you and me, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months in these two verses alone, but I'm not going to. I would much rather you sit downstairs and buy me a cinnamon roll and we can talk about it there. The key to understanding the distinction between these two things, those vessels that have been prepared, is Paul is not wasting words. Those vessels of glory were prepared beforehand. All we can say is we understand, we believe that that means before the foundations of the earth, they are foreknown, they are predestined. The vessels of wrath simply says prepared. In other words, I'm not saying that there are people who have been prepared before the foundations of the earth for destruction. Is that a possible meaning of this? Yes, but I always cling to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us and our children. There are some things that have not been fully clearly revealed and so I don't want to pretend to build an entire doctrine or foundation on this because I don't know. It's hard. It just makes me praise God for his sovereign selection. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Oh, here we go. God never fails, nor does his word. God never fails, nor does his justice. <gasps> the map has been right all along. Perhaps we've been reading it wrong. God has always had a plan. His sovereign selection sounds forth. Now Paul's gonna do the grand master stroke, and he's going to include the Gentiles into the inclusion of God's plan, his purpose on the map. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. So you might remember the story of Hosea and Gomer, greatest name in the Bible. Her name was Gomer. You know she's smoking if your name was Gomer. Anyway, she has a couple kids. One of them is called Lo-Ami. In Hebrew, that means not my people. She has another kid named Lo-Ru-Amach, not loved. And Paul says, that was you. And that was me. Not his people, not loved but God in his sovereign selection has done a thing. Verse 25 again, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And then he's gonna continue making sure that we understand this has always been a part of the narrative of scripture. He's gonna quote from Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. What we have to understand is yes, God chose the nation of Israel, but he did not choose them corporately so that all of them would experience eternal life. So I hear people all say, oh, but all Israel will be saved. No, it's not what Isaiah says, it's not what Paul says. Not all Israel is Israel. There is a different kind of choosing that is not unto eternal life. This is also why I would say this passage in Romans 9 is not Paul saying God chooses the whole church and those who come in are thereby chosen. There are passages that defend that Paul, that, well in Paul and other passages that will say that God chooses the church. Yes, but that's not what this passage is about. This is about individual sovereign selection, Jacob and not Esau. Yes, there is Israelites, as numerous as the sands of the sea, but not all will experience and enjoy eternal life with God. Only the remnant will be saved. And in this age, a Jewish person, to be of that remnant, must be a Christian. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And again, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Just to refresh your memory, if you don't know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, well, they all died. 
They were judged guilty. They were not morally neutral, and they all died. Well, what about, what about God's, really, that's not the issue. There is no such thing as a morally neutral person. So let me just finish this feel-good passage of the year with one final summary implication, one final principle. And it's, uh, it's not pithy at all, but I think it's hopefully very helpful. It goes like this. God is sovereign in his selection, and man is responsible. It creates a paradox, and I know, and it makes all of our foreheads wrinkle, and it perhaps doesn't resolve all the tension, and God's okay with that. God is sovereign in his selection, and man is responsible. Man is conceived in sin and is guilty, but God shows mercy on those who respond and repent and receive and believe, and those who do that do so because the Spirit of God is calling them to do so. What we simply have to understand is that God does not condemn people for being non-elect. Let me make sure I say that again. God does not condemn people for being non-elect. He condemns them for their sin and the sin that remains on them. And again, I'll just say it another time. We have to understand that nobody is morally neutral. If you can't get that resolved, then all of this will seem incredibly unfair and arbitrary. But no, every human being is morally wicked and compromised, evil in all the things that they think all the time. That's Genesis chapter six, verse five. But let me also give this comfort. There is nobody in all of scripture in either testament who wants to be saved but isn't. You'll never encounter that person. Oh gosh, I sure wish I was elect, but I can't be. You'll never find that person, ever, ever. Nor will you ever find a person who is saved but doesn't want to be. That person does not exist. So we might phrase it this way. Hopefully this will will be helpful. If anyone is saved, all credit goes to God for electing them. If anyone is not saved, all credit goes to them for rejecting him. Charles Spurgeon had a great, great way of describing this. He would say, listen, I don't know who the elect are, but the doctrine of election is a doctrine of grace, and it actually stimulates my evangelism. If I could walk around and pull everyone's shirts up and see if they had a P written on their bellies for predestined, I wouldn't give them the gospel, but I can't do that, that's weird, and so I give the gospel to everybody because their conversion is not up to my winsome communication. I trust God. And so he would say that at the end of the age when people go to heaven, they will walk through the gates of heaven and there will be a placard above the gate entering heaven that will say, come, whosoever will. And as they walk through, they will turn around and on the back of the gate it will say, chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. It is both and. God never fails. So I just want you to be encouraged and be reminded that God never fails if you are elect, no matter how many times you repeat the same stupid cycle of sin, God never fails. Nor does his word, nor does his justice. God never fails. For those that you know who have had privilege, that are rejectors, have patience, have prayer with them. Paul will say, not all who are Israel are Israel. But Paul cannot and he will not ever say, not all who are in Christ are in Christ. That can never be said. God never fails. So I pray that this day you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I pray, God, that you will redeem the words that I have spoken and that you will sound forth by your spirit through this this word and that it will not return void. Father, you know my heart and my pressure and the time is short, but I pray, God, that if there is someone here this morning who does not know you, who has perhaps been born with privilege but has rejected, that right now, right now, you will soften their hearts 
and they will repent and they will return. They will recognize that you are good and you have sovereignly selected them. May that day be today. We pray, God, that if there is someone like that, that you would do for them what you have done for us and that it's not just that they're not believers, but that they're not believers yet. And so would you continue to move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. And for the rest of us, God, would you remind us of the doctrine of election, that it is an extension of your grace and your mercy. And that we can say, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? I praise you that you have not for no other reason than you love me. So may we be a people who think thus and who worship accordingly. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, well thank you so much for being with us. I wanna remind you to go find Shay out there in the lobby, sign up for our Caldwell service. And uh, if you haven't gone to Discover Bethel, please do that. Please stand for a word of benediction. And then I'm gonna get you out of here because we got another service. Somebody went long when they preached Romans 9. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. You are dismissed, God bless. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.